You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Nick Baltus and I, Niels Kastblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Nick, it is great to be back with you this week. How was your summer? Hopefully not too hot where you went. My summer was good. Um, hi, Niels. I was in Greece. Uh, obviously, Greece was very warm. Um, it was not as hot as it was in July. I, I happened to be in London at the time. But it was beautiful. Family, friends, uh, you know, some summertime, uh, island life. It's beautiful. How about yours? Sounds, yeah, sounds pretty nice. Yes. So I've just been sort of uh, in and out between Denmark and Switzerland this year, but it's been pretty good as well. Can't complain. Now, we've got a pretty solid uh, lineup of topics uh, that you uh, brought along. And we also have a question that we should uh, tackle today. Uh, before we do that, you know, often, uh, or not often, I actually always try to remember to ask you kind of what's been on your radar, not related to the topics we're going to talk about, but kind of other things that you have found interesting in the last few weeks since we last spoke. Anything springs to mind at the moment for you? I mean, obviously, September came back. Uh, you know, we came back from from holidays, uh, and we you know we start seeing you know increased activity as um, as as our clients get positioned towards the end of the year. Um, I would say the um, you know the optimism and the kind of risk on mood we saw in the earlier part of the summer is now kind of moderated with some demand for a bit more kind of defensive stance. Um, you know, it's a good question as to whether the soft landing is coming uh, or, or we're going to see like a bit more stubborn rates for for a bit longer. Um, and you see a bit of a pendulum between is interest rate uncertainly going to kind of normalize um, as much as we have been wanting or have been expecting? Is it still a kind of a carry-seeking opportunity? Uh, because we tend to see a lot of uh, a lot of our clients looking into uh, kind of carry trades, uh, whether that is in the linear space or in the vol space. Uh, there is this kind of yield enhancement um, kind of appetite. Obviously, diversification is still uh, on, on on people's minds. So we see now uh, big institutional investors kind of going back into those multi-strat constructions uh, that, that blend carry sources, some sort of defensive sources. So I, now I would say there's fairly balanced appetite in the present moment for the profiles uh, that you know, we, we typically look at. That's probably like the quick reflection from the, you know, from the last, I would say, two weeks that I've been back from, uh, from the August break. Sure. No, that's pretty interesting. Good stuff. All right. Well, as a quick trend following uh, update, in my own trend barometer finished yesterday at 45. So although that's still pretty neutral, it has been rising recently. And I think that's also reflected somewhat in the performance numbers that I'm going to share in just uh, a minute. Uh, overall, there seems to be pretty broad-based uh, attribution, nothing that kind of you know, completely jumps out of, uh, of, of, of the screen, but it looks like we both have sort of some wins on the fixed income side and also the energy side, and those are big sectors, so they can certainly um, make a difference in performance. So far, and this is as of Wednesday, because I don't think that we have the uh, numbers from yesterday, 1.95% up for the month of the Beta 50 index, which means it's up about 1.6% for the year. 
CTA uh, the CTA index, SockGen CTA, up two and a quarter, uh, up half a percent for the year. The SockGen trend index up 2.4% for the month, and it's flat now for the year. And the short-term traders index up about 70 basis points, but still down 2.7% for the year. Equities, MSCI World, flat for the month, still up 14.6 for the year. Government bonds, not doing so well again, down 70 basis points so far uh, this month. And the S&P 500 is flat for the month and up 17.34% so far this year. Now, before we dive into the topics, I wanted to just ask you this question, uh, Nick, that came in from Corey. Now, I seem to remember that we may have answered this before, but I'm not sure. So therefore, out of courtesy to Corey, uh, I want to bring it up just to be absolutely sure. And the question is, if an investor is heavily weighted equities, as most people are, are they better off with trend-following providers that don't pro, uh, include equities as one of the utilized asset classes? In the short run, in a big sudden negative equity move, it seems that the answer is logically to be yes. So your trend-following allocation isn't caught long, but over the longer period of negative equity returns, being able to be short equities could be a positive. Has this ever been studied or analyzed? Question mark. Thanks so much. Love the show. Corey. All right, um, Nick, quick thoughts on this before we dive into the topics. Uh, what are your sort of views on this question? Yeah, it's a question that comes along quite regularly, I would say, um, in the sense that you know, I'm holding my equities portfolio alongside other uh, parts of the asset allocation and uh, you know, adding an alternative source for return that being trend following, obviously, um, you know, brings up the question as to whether I would want to overload equities on, uh, I guess, on an upstream path. Uh, in other words, should I be long in my asset allocation, which I anyway am, and then still in my alternative? So should I just reduce this participation in equities on the on the upside? Which is a fair point to be made, uh, but completely taking out equities out of a trend program, I think it's now going against its ability to you know, to provide convexity in the downside. Uh, so you know, to the second part of the question, you know, with negative equity returns, which typically happen um, alongside volatility spikes, and they tend to persist for some time. Uh, this is precisely when you'd expect a trend follower to be able to deploy those short exposures in equities. Um, you know, surely we can talk about you know how growth risk is you know propagating across other asset classes and how convexity can come along from you know your bonds exposure and so on and so forth. But you know, still having a short equity exposure within a trend system alongside a long trend a long equities exposure on the SAA. Uh, is going to provide this defensiveness uh, around challenging markets. So I think the question is not, at least in my view, whether we should have equities or not. It is more about whether the equity participation on the upside should somehow be controlled by some form. Um, you know, there are various ways one can do it. You know, we can control the overall beta to equities. You can control you know, the outright exposure or the net exposure. There's various ways. And I believe, I believe there's a paper from... I believe it's from AHL that is looking into different ways of achieving additional defensiveness versus equities. Uh, obviously, there is a cost to pay, uh, and that cost to pay is the participation on the upside and the fact that equities historically obviously have been compensating the investor by the equity risk premium, which is uh, harvested by, by taking those long exposures. I think the last point that I would make is that you know, the transition from being net long to net short is also a feature that trend following systems deploy. So whether one has a, 
uh, kind of reduced participation on the upside or has a faster signal, at least from the perspective of defensiveness versus kind of carry cost, would probably give a very similar answer over the longer term. Whether you're fast or reduce your upside participation, relatively similar, statistically wise, right? I mean, there's other uh, things that you know, one should consider about the design, but at least from, from, from the outside, just looking at the stats should be similar. I think that's very way, very well laid out, uh, Nick. And I just want to add one small thing, um, and that is, and I, you know, I feel I've said exactly the same not that long ago. This is why I'm suspecting we may have answered this question before. But anyway, what springs to mind for me is also that because many large managers use correlations as an important part of managing their risk, if you pull out equities, it changes the dynamic of the portfolio and it actually might lead you to take different positions, certainly different uh, exposure in other asset classes. And therefore, people might think about this, oh, well, I might lose some money on equities uh, if it turns and I'm long. Sure, but you might be allowed to have more bonds or more something else in the portfolio that's going to make up for it. So it's not an easy um, conversation. And this is also why I'm a little bit skeptical with the trend we see, uh, pardon the pond here, the trend we see in our industry where you allow clients to design their own portfolio saying, oh, you can have this building block and this building block and so on and so forth, because they may not see all the various relationships and effects these things have so I don't want to get into a big debate about it. I'm just, I'm just, this is just my kind of two thoughts um, that I wanted to add. I think that the last sense I would put, just because you mentioned it, I think now that kind of brings me a bit of a deja vu because I think we've discussed it. But anyhow, I think if there's an active decision to reduce participation on the upside, there's another consideration to be made with regards to that risk that you would in principle deploy on, the, on those long exposures. What do you do with it? Allocating that in other assets or other asset classes is very likely to create concentration risk in another pocket of the portfolio. So then the question becomes, you know, in the lack of participation, should I just reduce my overall risk at that time as a function of how much risk I'm not actually deploying that I would have anyway uh, had? You know, Nick, people are going to go back and listen to our last conversation and see if we answered it the same way, because I have a feeling it was you and I, but there we are. Actually, it sets us very nicely up for today's episode and not today's, one of today's big topics, because I think you and I are going to talk about one of the biggest challenges that investors are facing around the world. Uh, but we're also going to discuss uh, what the secret to trend following may be, in fact, based on a paper from our friends over at TransTrend. But as usual, I may not have read the papers as closely as you do, but I will do my best to uh, to keep up. Now, before we dive into this, what I call this very important uh, topic, which is, by the way, stock bond correlation, which I also seem to see coming up um, much more in the, in the papers and the press we see at the moment, I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on a point that Andrew made last week on how model portfolios may find significant value add from trend following. And because this is why he believes that the AUM of the industry might get a massive boost uh, going forward. Uh, now, I have been hoping for that for 35 years, so I'm not necessarily sure that now is the time, but it could be. So I wanted to hear your thoughts about it. 
So um, the point that you know Andrew made is like this two foot foot stool or, or or something like that. I mean, he gave like a very nice analogy, um, effectively saying that you have your equities and, and bonds, but you know the whole thing just doesn't balance uh, if the correlation between the between the two is positive. Um, and obviously, we have had you know decades or centuries of equity bond positive correlation, which obviously in the last 20, 30 years with the Fed action and the falling rates has turned into a negative sign, which by the way, in our lifetime pretty much has been the status quo. Uh, we've seen those equities and bonds diversifying each other, bonds acting as a diversifier on equity do- downturns and so on and so forth. What happened obviously from 2021, 2022 onwards was that inflation uh, spiked significantly, hence causing that correlation not necessarily to break, but go back to the historical positive numbers. And and here we are kind of debating as to whether this is going to stay, uh, whether this is either the new norm or the return to the old norm, or this n- negative equity bond correlation will, will just come back. Now, as long as this positive correlation stays in, then we have less diversified model portfolios, more risky portfolios, and then question comes, you know, what is the next diversifier in this whole structure that can allow us to maintain, you know, returns and risk at, 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 at reasonable levels. And I think the point that Andrew was making is that trend following and CTAs is basically what is going to fill that gap. And you know, that's the third uh, kind of uh, foot in this, in this tool to make the whole thing balance out, right? I think that was his point. I think the hypothesis here is that this correlation is not going to flip around into negative numbers, uh, but you know whether that might or not be the case, and I think that's you know that, that that's more for economists to opine and possibly for us to experience in real life. Um, what I would say is that we have seen historically that this contribution to performance and to risk reduction from trend followers has been quite substantial, and I think that comes primarily from the fact that you know you're allowed to short and you're allowed to actively move your positions from long to short and deploy your risk as a function of the overall trendiness in the markets. So I think the good example here is in where we're talking about 2022 and then 2008. You know, two good years that seemingly trend following did well, but the driving sources are so different and the positioning has been so different. You know, in 2008, it was more about, you know, shorting equity, shorting commodities, uh, you know, going long bonds. Whereas last year it was basically different, you know, a different mix, you know, shorting bonds, long the dollar, going long commodities in the beginning of the, of the year. So the point that I would want to make is the following. The diversification has been tested in various environments, you know, with either positive or negative correlation. I think I agree with Andrew that model portfolios should and will soon, hopefully, uh, introduce this sleeve, not anymore as an alternative sleeve, but more as an essential sleeve. By the way, I think that's another thing we have talked, you know, we discussed about in the past, uh, how essential trend following should become. The question is how much, and, and, and that you know, brings me back to some work we did uh, about four years ago. You know, we wrote a, we wrote a report here at, uh, at GS, and the title was something like, how much should you allocate in trend following? And I can kind of talk you through a bit uh, the results, because they were quite interesting. So obviously we said, okay, this is trend following, this is like a model portfolio, you know, equities, bonds, you know, pick your SAA um, that you prefer. If you look statistically between the two, with any form of uh, of of vast allocation kind of methodology, let's say mean variance, for example, or some sort of maximum diversification or whatever that might be, trend following itself, you know, would get a significantly larger allocation than five or six or ten percent. Right? 
it would be more like 40 and 50 and so on and so forth. Obviously, because historically has had a sharp ratio and downside characteristics that are better than just being holding equities and, 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 and bonds. But I think the pivotal moment here in how much we should be allocating into it and how we look into it is how as investors and obviously institutional investors, you know, having the duty to, to, to deliver returns for their policyholders, is how much from a career risk perspective can they deviate from a status quo, right? So if a 60-40 portfolio is what we all think as a model portfolio, then me deciding upon a 30% trend following allocation would make me move away from the pack. And obviously that's a tracking error and that tracking error is equally the risk out of which obviously we expect the reward, but on the downside, we have to have a narrative around it. So I think the big debate now is to whether this tracking error is no longer tracking error because we're actually changing what we're going to compare ourselves against. And that would possibly be, if that is what Andrew is all about, you know, a 60-40 that is multiplied by 80% and therefore shrunks a bit and then another 20% is becoming trend. So I think where we are at this present moment is that all those alternative allocations, and I think trend following is a good example here, are seen from an allocator perspective as tracking error in a way to what they should be holding rather than bringing it in. And I think that is the moment that likely, you know, to, to I guess to your aspiration or Andrew's aspiration, um, it, will, it, will, it will just jump over and become essential. And if that is the case, then the, the story is very different, right? But would the correlation stay positive? Well, that's kind of the big, that's the big thing question, we're right? going to dive into now. That's the next big report from our friends over at AQR. Uh, before we dive into that, though, let me just say that one thing that puzzled me many, many years ago about allocations from institutions and other fiduciaries is this fact that when you have so much hard data, about the positive impact that trend following has on pretty much any portfolio. And I think we can say that with five decades of actual returns, that that's pretty convincing compared to many other strategies that have not been around that long, but is very um, popular. I was just, I was kind of thinking that maybe one day you, it would, it, the thing that the tide would turn that you could get into trouble for not allocating to trend because the evidence is so strong towards the positive impact. Now, maybe that's a bit of a fantasy I have to live with for a while longer. But you have to hope sometimes that, you know, rational thinking may prevail at some point. We say the same thing, right? Because your point is that if you're penalized for not being there, it's almost as if it becomes part of the model portfolio, in a way. So not being there, you're actually not creating tracking error versus that new paradigm. All right, as alluded to, we are going to discuss a paper written by our friends over at AQR called A Changing Stock Bond Correlation. And I quote just from the beginning, just to kind of warm you up, Nick, because it's going to be over to you in a few seconds here. It reads, for most of the last 100 years, equities have served as a dominant return generator in many portfolios, with bonds as the chief diversifier. In the last 20 years, however, the relationship between the two asset classes have been quite different from early history. And um, with that, Nick, let's dive into some of the things that are maybe a little bit more deep than just thinking about stock bond correlation as a headline uh, kind of thing. 
That is also another topic I think that you know was discussed last week briefly uh, on the equity bond correlation, and that's that's also a topic that over the last I would say two years or so we know we have looked here you know with uh, you know with my colleagues and we've done work around you know inflation and growth and how those kind of create different uh, you know return and risk dynamics for us allocators. You know the equity bond correlation has been in the center of as we said asset allocation for decades, um, and I think. Our memory is quite short because, you know, we do remember those years uh, whereby Fed action and falling interest rates had, um, you know, had caused the correlation to effectively break from the historical positive standards. Um, so what this piece of work uh, is about, uh, came out beginning of this year, I believe AQR had had that uh, published in their own website probably mid last year, how asset classes perform across different uh, inflation growth regimes. And more importantly, how inflation, how equity bond correlation kind of relates to those relationships. Um, eventually, they published this piece of work, I believe, at the Jump Portfolio Management earlier this year. It goes about, obviously, the equity bond correlation. And they start by, obviously, witnessing historical data, suggesting that for centuries, they have data since the 1900s, so century plus, uh, this was positive. And this was positive up until the early 2000s. That turned negative. And by turning negative, we have had this, uh, obviously, uh, Goldilocks period where both equities and bonds have been performing well. And we've had this you know, very uh, you know, easygoing, but you know, well, you know, well-diversified portfolio in the asset allocation. There have been some short-term spikes, like, for example, in David Tantrum. But setting that aside, it has been a strong negative correlation between the two. Up until obviously last year, uh, that we saw this substantial uh, sell-off between equities and bonds. So they want to understand a bit more, you know, what is driving equities, what is driving bonds, and how this relationship between the two uh, shifts between positive and negative territory as a function of growth and inflation. So they go about looking into historical data: rising growth, falling growth, rising inflation, falling inflation. What you end up seeing is that stocks and bonds are much more connected, obviously, with growth, whereas bonds are much more connected to inflation. So obviously, we know with falling inflation, both of them perform. With rising inflation, both of them underperform. But obviously, uh, bonds would pay a higher cost to it. Whereas with growth, rising growth, it's typically good news for stocks, but not necessarily for bonds, and vice versa on, uh, on a falling growth scenario. Um, this, however, if you effectively break it down, get you to a point whereby the correlation between the two, and that's also kind of related to some of the work we have done here with our research colleagues, the correlation between the two is effectively lower when the inflation stays below some sort of level. It's not 2%, is it 3%? It's, it's, it's the level beyond which the economy becomes overheated, unsustainable anymore, and therefore we have a shock, obviously, in the nominal uh, prices for bonds, as well as in the equity market and the, and the correlation between the two turns uh, positive and you have the classic um, stagflation environment. So this is more or less what they're trying to say. And then they go into the details. What are the news in terms of growth shocks or inflation shocks that make either equities or bonds behave in a particular way that gets us to a point whereby that equity bond correlation becomes primarily positive when you have 
more dominant inflation shocks than growth shocks. Can I ask a question here? So I think inflation has been on everybody's mind for the last two years. Um, and, and, and one of the things that obviously is being debated is, are we facing now a period of structural inflation, which I'm probably a believer in. I don't think we're going to go back to, to where we came from. Uh, now, one simple way of maybe highlighting why that may cause the correlation to shift, if we were just trying to isolate it, um, or I'm trying to isolate it to, to make it clear. I mean, one could say that it changes how central banks can navigate and operate and manipulate. I was wondering whether you agree with that or and or and and or whether there are other factors that you see that structural inflation also because as you said when you go back these 100 years plus it is quite telling that when you hit that level around 3% inflation interestingly enough correlations are pretty much consistently positive and it doesn't take much in my imagination to think that 3% would be kind of the low level of inflation we're going to see for a while. So I do think this this is why, I'm, to me, this conversation is, or topic, is one of the most important ones in, investors has to deal with, uh, whether we are right or wrong, but but regardless, I think it's it's really important. I mean, the 2% is a bit of anchoring, right? Above and beyond. You know, you know yeah. where this 2% came, out, came from? You happen to know? Oh, this was something in the New Zealand, mm. some kind of uh, like a guy show, that, like at a, a press, finance minister. Yeah. They kind of yeah. said, yeah, yeah, we have like a bit of a tag, and I don't know, let's say 2%. And that's how it came exactly. about, right? There's no, there's no... Yeah, he just pulled it out of his uh, pocket uh, at a whatever yeah. press conference or TV. Exactly. So yeah. there's there's a bit of anchoring on this on this 2%, you know, by, by all means. Um, and, and obviously, once you, you know, once you think about, you know, central banks, you know, effectively what they want to do is reduce, uh, you know, interest rate volatility and stabilize the market. That's pretty much, uh, you know, their, um, I guess, their objective. Uh, and obviously the question is, and you know, we've seen that over the last one year or so, how much can they hike before that becomes a growth shock? Right. This is really the... So far, five and a half percent. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, <laughs> are we going down? That's that's the good question. And the anticipation was yes, but it doesn't appear to be the case, you know, using the, you know, the most recent news. So it, it, it's hard to make the call, right? I think it's hard to make the call. Yeah. Eventually, where this paper is going is that obviously acknowledging... Uh, the dynamics between infl- you know, between inflation, growth, asset class performance, but ultimately diversification in balance portfolios or lack thereof. And what they put forward is, you know, obviously they show with data, it's obviously uh, simple algebra, that when this correlation kind of increases and the risk is going up and the return is most likely falling if you want to maintain the same level of risk because you have to reduce participation in equities. And they go about and say, okay, what can we do? So it's not a surprise. We're going to go back now to the point that we started a conversation on, and they look into alternatives and how alternatives can help equity bond portfolios. And no surprise, obviously, uh, in one of the two or three strategies they come up with as a potential diversifier is trend following. So they talk about illiquid alternatives. They talk about, obviously, commodities, because, you know, obviously, if inflation shock is primarily the one that is determining this equity bond correlation and the breaking into a positive territory, commodities can benefit. Uh, but trend following and long short equity uh, and risk premium uh, strategies are those that they kind of put out as potential diversifiers. But yeah, trend is one. 
let me interrupt you there because I, I did notice their list. Illiquid alternatives such as private equity and stuff like that, commodities, long short equity, and dynamic strategies like trend following and macro. When I looked at that list, I have to say I was pretty skeptical about a couple of them. I mean, illiquid alternatives, I mean, the only reason why it kind of dampens things is because it's never priced. I mean, yeah, it's a return smoothing, not right? very often. It's a return smoothing. <laughs> it's return smoothing, right? So to me, that's kind of not something that gives me a really warm feeling if that's how I have to reduce my uh, volatility. Because one thing they mentioned, and I think we should highlight that, of course, they do uh, some pretty, pretty good research uh, like you guys do. Um, something that I had no idea would be the case. And, and of course, this is uh, an approximation. But they say that if the stock bond correlation goes from minus 0.5 to plus 0.5, the 60-40 portfolio gets 20% more volatile. I mean, that's not insignificant. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, the aim, of course, is to try and, and dampen that. But anyways, the liquid alternatives, I thought, oh, I don't think that's a great but idea. But in, in, so, in all fairness, they do say yeah. as well, right? You know, they, they do say that, you know, the diversification potential is very limited, right? Because obviously oh, yeah, sure. you acknowledge that, you know, whether it's private equity or private credit, it's still equities and, no, yeah. and bonds, right? No, no. I in mean, they're right in mentioning it. It's just I'm personally saying, well, it's not the route I would take. Then they say commodities and... You know, frankly, um, I think it's such a logical thing. And then when I think about what actually happened the last 12 months, I'm thinking, well, maybe people should be cautious because we go into the Ukraine situation, uh, inflation explodes, everybody thinks that commodities are going to the sky, and what do we see? Well, they all sell off pretty significantly, whether it's energy, whether it's grains, whatever. So... I think there is a danger in putting too much weight on a static or a predictable reaction uh, from commodities per se. And by the way, I mean, you probably know this a lot better than I do, but from eyeballing charts over many decades, I seem to feel that many commodities in a 30-ish plus year cycle spend 10% going up, uh, sorry, 10 years going up, but 20 years going down. Which is also why long-only commodities and all these indices that were uh, launched by Jim Rogers and people like that haven't been great for investors who bought into that thesis. So I think commodities are wonderful. I just think long-only commodities is something that I'm skeptical about as a true diversifier. I know we are pinning down to one of those four choices that I really like. So anyways. The, 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 um, the one thing I would say about commodities is that, you know, we did some we did some work with regards to inflation and growth dynamics and connection with commodities in, and obviously setting aside the mechanical relationship between the actual number that we quote as inflation that obviously incorporates uh, you know energy prices the link even if it is statistically significant in other words commodity prices rising together with inflation or inflation rising together with commodity prices you know one brings the other almost mechanically there is some interaction with growth. And if we think about rising inflation and rising growth, this is much more of a pro-environment vis-a-vis a falling growth and rising inflation. In which case, primarily the more, typically the more industrial metals do not outperform. So it's more like on the energy and the pressure metals that you would see, at least historically in relative terms, better performance. 
So it's not just by rising inflation. I think the interaction with growth is, is, is key, which takes us back to the equity-bond correlation. So the equity-bond correlation breaking and becoming positive, that is the time that not all of them go up. And it's primarily energy, I would say, and precious metals. Of course, you might tell me, okay, let's look at gold over the last one year. Well, then we had like the dollar thing. So it's, it's, I think it's a convoluted discussion, but I, I know there is a fundamental link there or a mechanical link in the first place. But we have to be more careful. That, that's how we look at it. My other concern about all of this is that I just feel that the world is changing in ways we haven't seen before, and I and and including kind of where inflation will come from. I mean, we have demographics that are changing dramatically, and and I don't mean just in numbers, but also in attitude. And um, I wonder if we're looking at a slightly different scenario, or not just slightly, but a very different scenario, meaning that a lot of these models, I guess that's what I deep down feel. I think a lot of these economic models that people are using may not work as well in the future we're running into uh, as they have in the past. I think just things will be significantly different. Anyway, that's a different discussion, Nick. Um, feel free to comment on it in a second. I just want to say, uh, long short equity, I'm not smart enough to figure out whether that's a true diversifier uh, from that point of view. What I have always felt, and this is kind of my simple way of, of, of thinking, and that is, well, if you want that diversification away from equity, why do you want to invest in the same underlying, just call it long-short equity? Now, of course, I realize that it's not exactly the same as long-only equity, but it's still equity. And so that's just my my, my naive, uninformed view of, uh, of this particular strategy, I'm sure. Um, which leaves us with dynamic strategies like trend and macro. There we are. Now, the... The, the few little things I would say, starting from the um, kind of the last point on on the equity, I would expect that here we're thinking about uh, equity market neutral strategies. So in other words, completely isolating the um, kind of cross-sectional differences between stocks uh, while at the same time minimizing the beta. I would imagine uh, that's what we're, we're looking at. On the commodity side, I agree with you. You know, demographics are changing. Uh, you know, there's an aging population. The world is becoming more, more, more inflationary just by by the nature of it, just by the fact that you know we you know we grow older and the, I guess the um, the bulk of the um, of the workforce is kind of shrinking in a way. Uh, you know, the other thing that I think it's quite important, specifically for the commodities. Um, I know you're also touching a place that you know I'm spending more and more of my days uh, over the recent year. Uh, it's this whole green transition dynamic, and how you know obviously. We're shifting into you know the electric vehicle or the you know, renewable energy, and then obviously there are now other physical commodities that become more and more important. Obviously, with limited supply and anticipated excess demand, you know whether that is I don't know lithium for for batteries or like aluminum, which by the way is quite costly to produce. So then you have to kind of balance out like how much do you pay to produce and how much gains do you have from from you know going more environmental. So I think there's a few dynamics in place over the, over this uh, over the last you know I guess decades uh, and in anticipation of, of what's coming next that I don't disagree with you. There are there are shifting dynamics uh, that will make you know some of those notions of inflation possibly worth reconsidering or redefining. But that brings us to trend again. <laughs> well, it brings us to trend, and it brings us to kind of the conclusion of this paper as well. Because I wanted to follow up with uh, a couple of questions before we jump to the transcript paper. But kind of wrapping it up from the papers, from your point of view, uh, Nick, how do you, what are you left with? 
what I'm left with is that we've seen 30 years for of pretty much the same regime. Negative equity bond correlation and an inflation growth mix that have been very accommodative. Uh, I'm just trying to look into some stats here. Over the last 50 years, 50% of the time, based on some definition of growth and inflation, has been a rising growth falling inflation. And you know, if I were to look into the last possibly 20 years, this is probably 80%. And if I now look into the last year and a half, we went from rising growth falling inflation to rising growth rising inflation, first half of last year. Uh, then we went into falling growth rising inflation during the summer. And then we've been since November onwards on a falling growth falling inflation. So we have seen significant shifts in that mix. And that mix obviously is primarily driven by inflation, obviously geopolitics and so on and so forth. But I'm seeing a much more volatile macro environment, which in my view requires much more prudent, possibly dynamic asset allocation decisions. And this is also work we've done as to how we incorporate you know, inflation, growth, possibly more now casting indicators into the way that we allocate on the beta side. And most importantly so, diversifying sources on top. So I think if it wasn't too obvious before, and possibly now go back to the points that Andrew was making, it starts becoming more and more obvious. Even because the macro environment is volatile, or because the equity bond correlation turns into positive, or because we have inflation spikes or inflation shocks, you know, the asset allocation story is, is, is shifting dramatically. That's, that's what I'm left with. I think I've seen more papers on equity bond correlation the last two years than I've seen over the last 20. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And and actually, we were fortunate enough to yesterday record an episode that's going to come out in a few weeks uh, with one of the brightest people I've ever come across, which is also one of your colleagues, uh, the head of um, asset allocation research at Goldman Sachs, uh, Christian Müller Gleesman. And that is an awesome episode, um, and everyone should uh, everyone should tune into that when it comes out in a few weeks. Now, just as a little observation, um, and and of course I can see you physically, so I'd love to see your 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 reaction to this. I don't know if you noticed in the news, but there's a, a recent interview that came out uh, yesterday, I think, with Ray Dalio. Uh, he was attending, I think, the Milken Institute Asia event. And the headlines from that interview is that he doesn't want to end, uh, own any bonds at this stage. And I stress any bonds at this stage. He wants to be in cash, which, of course, previously he didn't share that view. But now cash is better than than even bonds. It's an interesting comment coming from someone like that. But more for me at a time where bonds have come off quite a bit at this point in time, at least in price. I don't disagree with him necessarily, but it's just an interesting comment. I don't know if you noticed it. The The other thing I just want to mention from the news that I picked up uh, was actually that Nassim Taleb uh, was on Tim Ferriss' podcast this week or last week. And it was very interesting to hear him defend Universe's uh, way of calculating their 4,000% return back during COVID and other things. It's a good, it's a good conversation. Uh, very interesting. You may not have uh, heard it. I, so I, 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 I did not hear that, but on the point on 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 not holding bonds, the one thing I would say is I did not read it. Uh, I've seen it, uh, but I have not read it. 
did he actually mention Horizon? Because I don't think he so did. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm coming yeah. from. Because now you're, you know, you're reminding me a story. There's um there's a very nice book by by Tetlock um, that is called Super Forecasting. He goes about describing how we typically produce forecasts and how unless we specify probability and horizon, our forecasts always are always correct. If I tell you it might rain, no, if it does rain, I will tell you, yeah, of course I told you it might rain. But if it doesn't, I told you, yeah, of course I told you that it might, but it, it wasn't like hundred percent sure, right? Uh, and then if I don't even specify the horizon over which I'm making that forecast, you know, it's even harder for me to be assessed as a forecaster. Uh, even more so, you, you know, there have been, I think, a few like social experiments. What's the probability you associate to likely or probably or might? And we tend to use this kind of language when we write research reports or when we speak to, to the media and so on and so forth. But unless we really specify the time horizon, and possibly the probability, we can never be proven wrong, right? So I think the challenge here is more about whether not holding bonds is prudent in the next month or two or three, rather than outright. And I think that's the hard, I think that, 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 that's a hard point in the assessment, right? It's a, it's a great point, and it's it's obviously completely correct and 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 relevant, and that's something that we often don't hear. It's like when I when when people were talking about when we had this Bitcoin sort of crazy period, and people got so excited when they heard that uh, some of these big well-known hedge fund managers uh, were you know were, had bought Bitcoin, right? And I was just thinking, well, you should know that these guys are the first ones to sell it as soon as the price starts to go down. And uh, of course, that's exactly what they did. Anyways, let's jump to the other paper uh, that we want to talk about from our Dutch friends, Transtrend. They wrote a paper called The Fruits of a Diversified Approach. And it touches on a number of topics and you can kind of dive into where you want. They talk about whether... Mark, certain markets are better traded as by specialists or by CTAs. And uh, they talk about kind of the impact that order flows may have. And then it gets in then it gets interesting because then they start talking about what really drives performance uh, in a CTA program, whether it's correlations or whether it's the trading activity. So I would love to hear, your thoughts uh, on uh, on their findings and, and their paper. Yep, uh, absolutely. Um, and I think the last point that you made on on, on what is driving performance and, and dynamic position sizing, that's the one I kind of relate the most with. Uh, so I'm going to get to that. But they start the paper, I think finally they start the paper by how we started our conversation today, because I think they mentioned something along the lines of, um, you know, should we hold equities in trend following? specifically hold long equities because we're actually holding long equities elsewhere? Or should we hold you know, higher yielding currencies? Because then if that is what we're doing, then it's almost like more like a long carry portfolio. So they kind of go about and say, you know, are we basically the specialist in those markets? Well, not necessarily in those markets. And you can have like, you know, the specialist doing, uh, I don't know, your uh, stock selection beta portfolio or your kind of global macro doing your, you know, currency allocation. But what we're more specialist on is bringing everything together from different asset classes, monitoring signals, but then having a prudent portfolio construction engine that allows us not only to capture those conditional trends, but more importantly so, do the fine adjustments on a dynamic, in a dynamic fashion 
And that is part of, I guess, of the, should I call it alpha? I don't know. You know, th this term has been used in this show so many times. <laughs> I think the more I mention it, the more I'm going to open up. Dynamic like, alpha. Dynamic Let's call alpha. It dynamic like, alpha. Can, can of worms, but uh, this is the place in that in that in that write up that I kind of found a bit more interesting and quite engaging because the first time you read through, you're like, wait a second, because I'm going to say basically what you know what they're saying, which seems to be a bit counterintuitive. They say at some point that, you know, with falling prices and excessive falling prices, they end up buying into the asset as opposed to just continue shorting, which you'd expect a trend following manager to do. Or they say, you know, with significantly uprising prices, they end up starting selling. And you're like, wait a second, are you doing trend or are you not doing trend? And obviously the, you know, the moment you start reading through again and, and, and you put all the pieces together, it kind of makes sense. And I think this is a point I had made, I believe, in the first time uh, that we got together back in November. When you were asking me if you remember about crowding and whether CTAs are, I know, are reinforcing down moves and so on and so forth. And I remember making this particular point being precisely because trend followers vol scale the exposures at the asset level, a falling price, which is typically associated with a spike in vol, is going to lead to a smaller signal the more down the price goes because the more the price goes up. And therefore, you might be holding 10 units short and then the next day you might have to hold only 8 units short because the vol went up and obviously your vol scaling tells you to reduce your gross. So, but going from 10 short to 8 short, you have to buy back too. So this is the point whereby, yes, you still continue on your down path because your signal is negative, but your gross exposure drops. So you end up kind of buying back and almost crystallizing the gains. You know, the opposite to it is, for example, last year, we know with the commodity moves, those spikes in March were A, very volatile. So, you know, symmetrically, you would reduce the exposure as in start selling on the way up. But also it happened in a very high correlated fashion. And I believe the paper also talks about this particular moment. And you wanting a diversified portfolio in a dynamic fashion, you penalize clusters. So the more correlated assets become, the less you'd want to hold them. So here is now a very mechanical, yet quite, uh, I think, intuitive way to understand their point. Point being, in excessive market downturns, there is a point that we start buying. And by the way, if there is a crowding comment to be made, that is actually anti-crowding. You're supporting the market as it falls because you start buying. And conversely, on the upside, correlation and volatilities would end up possibly leading the portfolio, you know, switching risk budgets in ways that you end up selling rising prices. And I think that's 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 our point, which I found quite interesting because I am believer. Uh, I think we've discussed uh, quite at length here of, of dynamic position sizing. So pretty much aligned with with my way of thinking. And we can take that discussion elsewhere as to whether this is pure trend or you know adding a few more reversal signals and so on and so forth. But I'll pause here in case you have any comments. Yeah, so um, so what are my thoughts on that? Uh, my thoughts are that what you're describing there is absolutely correct. And I think uh, if done well, uh, I think it is a very effective way uh, of managing a portfolio risk, for sure. It leads me to a question, though, and that is, 
the way I, what I took away from their paper was that they feel that a lot of the quote-unquote alpha comes from this trading activity. And then I would then ask myself, well, if that's the case, then that should mean that managers with dynamic position sizing should have an advantage and should outperform those of our friends who are not quite there yet. But that doesn't seem to be the case either, really. Over certain periods of time, maybe. In the long run, debatable. Maybe it's uh, also regime-dependent, of course, at periods of time where there's huge trends. Of course, you would expect the non-dynamic guys to maybe outperform and and vice versa. So, but I've, I've often said uh, on the podcast uh, when speaking to some of our friends who don't dynamic position size that because they say their method is better and I say, well, I don't see that in the data. So now that we are presented with the opposite view, I kind of have to stick to my story uh, in, in the sense that, well, I don't think overall you could say that that's better, but there will be managers that simply are better. I do believe in that. I think there are managers that have just a little bit more skill, if I can put it that way, um, because otherwise all everyone would perform the same, which they don't. So anyways, those are kind of my reactions to what you described and what the paper describes. I mean, I would, I would agree with you on the point that... Um... You know, dynamic position sizing, I, I I would not think of it as the largest part of the alpha, whether that is performance or skill, because you know I think I shared my views here that you know alpha is you know is 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 not objectively defined. Alpha could be numerically the intercepts in regression, that's where it came from, but we now heuristically use it um for uh, for uh, for differentiated skill as well. And this is less quantifiable. But anyhow. Um, I think dynamic position sizing is more about prudent risk management, in my view. Uh, and that is not to say that those that do static position sizing do not risk manage their portfolios. Uh, it's just that my, you know, my personal view from, from, from building and, and maintaining those portfolios on behalf of our clients, we would want to deliver relatively balanced risk profiles that reflect not just volatility but also correlations, because ultimately clustering of assets. You know, back to the point we're making on equities and bonds there are those linkages that go way beyond just a tagging of, oh, that's a commodity, oh, that's a rates instrument, that's, a, that's an equity. So that's how, that's how I see the dynamic position sizing, you know, if I, if, I, if I were to say. Now, the other points that I would make, which kind of go beyond trend, and this is some work we're doing at the moment, and I believe we discussed in the very, very beginning, uh, back in November, is how we see trend following beyond just pure trend. Because somebody can say, well, you know what? If this market keeps on kind of falling, why do you buy it back? Are you really acting upon trend or you're acting upon other things? And is that implicit reversion you're achieving by selling the market, um, you know, a, a trend function response or that's another signal you're kind of bringing in? And by the way, this is, you know, this is some work we're doing, uh, you know, by looking into other sources of returns that we can have in the CrossFit space. I can happily go in that direction if you want me to go, but possibly you remember we, we discussed some reversal signals or some carry signals. So we, I think there is value in this aggregation, 
but that goes beyond just 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 pure trend, right? And it's unclear whether you know the vol scaling in some respect. I guess you can see me kind of waving my hands here, but you know, masks a reversion signal. It it could be the same thing in a way, right? And I think there is value, uh, not in pure trend, but in pure trend, but plus adding stuff. Right? I think there's, there's there's also value exploring that that territory, specifically for years like this one, which has been an okay year, but not a a, a blockbuster, where you see more carry sources or reversion dynamics kind of playing out. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I've always felt that these strategies will perform differently, um, but it's just hard to say uh, whether one can consistently outperform the other. I, I think that there is too much in in what you said that we can unpack in the last five minutes that we have. I think actually the third paper we wanted to talk about, we may have to keep as well as a little bit of a secret uh, um, for next time. Okay. Uh. Unless you feel you want to just... Um, Talk a little bit about it um, because I—that's one of those papers that I only kind of skimmed through. I saw all the formulas in the paper and I thought, "Hmm, that's that's for Nick. That's that one is for Nick." No, okay. I mean, let's, I can give it like a very very quick overview. Even myself, I haven't found the time to to, to look at it in in great detail. So this work came from the Oxford Mann Institute. Um, this is the research center that sits in the Oxford University, uh, obviously with the collaboration of Mann HL and and. They typically put out very, very good work. Um, they try to blend from time to time new numerical quantitative techniques by the likes of machine learning and so on and so forth in the systematic investing space. Um, so this time around, they came up with some work. I know this was posted online on the 14th of August, I can see here, so like a month ago, literally a month ago. And the paper is called like Network Momentum Across Asset Classes. So network moment, what is network momentum? The whole idea of kind of momentum spill over um, has been in the literature for years. Uh, how, you know, a stock of a company is predicting the corporate bond performance of the same company or how we can look into um, kind of network effects between stocks. And, you know, I'm a mobile manufacturer, but, you know, the more I perform or the more I sell, uh, the more I anticipate, you know, the company that's building the screens or, I don't know, the, the silicon chips or... Uh, I don't know, the chargers or whatever that might be, you know, will also benefit from the network effects uh, and the fact that there is a kind of demand for for um, for goods to be repackaged into a final product. And there have been papers written on those, but once you look into a universe of a trend follower, which is more about macro assets across the classes, there is no kind of company level data that somebody could use. And what we typically do is that we enforce some correlation structure, which is primarily driven by some sort of long-term correlation analysis or possibly informed by our own tagging. Oh, that's an equity. Oh, that's a bond. But you know, what do you do with, you know, I don't know, Italian bonds? Is that credit that kind of resembles growth risk or that's like a duration asset? So what they go about is to say, well, how about we just forget about tagging assets and, and instead, um, you know, we ask the data, to speak by themselves and we build graphs and graphs come from the machine learning literature effectively connecting assets and you know creating central nodes of energy quote unquote and they go one step further and say well if there are those linkages then i can hypothesize that asset a is going to start building momentum if the assets that is connected with start building momentum themselves 
And I can obviously weight those momentum signals, um, you know, with the weights of, as we say, the, um, the tightness between the various assets between each other. And I can create a generic signal at the asset level that is, instead of being its own trend, it's nothing more than the aggregation of neighboring assets that are connected in this kind of graph network. That, that, that's pretty much what they do. So I think it's an interesting idea because you're still doing some form of trend following. So the nature of it is there, but the generation of signals uh, is very different to a univariate movement. And possibly, and you know, I, I need to look at it you know, in, 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 in greater detail, possibly there is a case to be made on an asset not trending per se, but the activity around it predicting that it's going to trend. So you don't have the ability to see the price moving before it starts moving, but you can somehow predict it's going to move because the rest are actually moving. In the same thing that, hey, the more screens I sell or the more chargers I sell, the more I can predict that whatever those things will be back as then will start selling in a way. So I, I, I think it's an interesting idea. You know, it came out and I think um, at least our, our get together deserved at least a mention. Absolutely. No, no. I mean, um, as you say, they do um, do some great work. So uh, it's worth uh, paying attention to. Maybe we'll come back to it uh, at a later stage. Maybe we'll find some completely different thing to talk about next time you're on. In the meantime, Nick, as always, I appreciate your insights. And if you, the dear listener, uh, also feel that this is definitely worth your time, perhaps you know a friend or two or five that might also be interested in what we're talking about on our little channel here. So please go to um, toptradersonplug.com forward slash review. That will give you the instructions to leave a rating and review of the podcast. And of course, we would also appreciate if you would share these episodes with your friends and colleagues. Next week, I am joined by Alan. So that will be uh, another interesting conversation, probably some global macro themes, I can imagine, maybe some allocation themes, maybe some trend-following themes. Uh, it will be uh, wide-ranging, no doubt. And should you have a question for Alan, uh, then send it to info at toptradersonplug.com and I will do my best to prompt him. From Nick and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.